Well, hey folks, Jeff Salzman here. Welcome to The Daily Evolver. I appreciate you being here with me today. I see I had in my notes, it's nice being alive with you. I meant to say live with you for those of you who are tuning in live via the YouTube portal or the Integral Life portal, or I don't know how it all works to tell you the truth, but also I think the page on Integral Global uh, in Facebook. And um, it's lovely to be alive with you today and to look at this moment in time in cultural evolution, in the evolution of politics, spirit, humanity in general, uh, and to see how it's unfolding, because that's what we do here at The Daily Evolver. I wanted to organize today's episode around questions that I've been receiving. I get great questions and comments and arguments from you people. And I love them. You can continue to send them again, Jeff at dailyevolver.com, or you can go to my website, dailyevolver.com, hit the connect tab, and you'll see an orange box that says, leave Jeff a voicemail, and you can leave me a voicemail there. And I'm actually going to play a couple that I've received here today. First, <laughs> this is my uh, favorite comment of the week. It's short uh, email. And this is from Matthew, and he is responding to the podcast I did over New Year's where I reviewed my favorite things, or the product of the year, of the decade, and of the millennium so far. And um, he wrote, I got, a lot, I got a lot of comments on that episode, by the way, uh, particularly people who liked the uh, review I did on the battery-operated power tools. And I, I just got one yesterday that said, we just got a new battery-powered lawnmower because of you. So I'm happy about that. Anyway, regarding that episode, Matthew writes, I appreciate this. Makes you feel less of a robot. Human reviewing mundane stuff. Feel free to add shit like this in your podcast ongoing. So thank you, Matthew, for that encouraging comment. I will indeed. All right, so today, in general, I just want to, first of all, notice this moment in time where we are, at least in the U.S. in politics, which has been such an obsession for so many of us, we see the normality of uh, a president meeting in the Oval Office with 10 senators from the other party who are there to discuss policy in good humor and good faith and how good that feels. I mean, I don't even care what they do. I mean, I guess I care what they do, but uh, if they work with that kind of attitude, you know, something good will come out of it, you know? And we don't have this poison of this mean red Trump in the picture. I hesitate, I think, as many of us do who despise Trump, to be too sanguine about his silence. I got a kick out of Bill Maher on his show the other night, Real Time, where he was questioning whether, is, is this silence, it's like, like the shark in Jaws, where halfway through the movie, after wreaking all kinds of havoc, the shark goes back out to sea. And everybody breathes a sigh of relief but not so fast. So, uh, you know, I think we're all in a little tension there. 
And then, you know, as if we could relax anyway, there's this new nemesis that arises out of the mists. And I'm going to play a question comment I got from one of my listeners, Rachel, because I think she summed it up. She summed it up for me. This is how I feel, too. I've been great since the inauguration or up till the inauguration. And then, man, what a tank, just all the stuff going on in Congress, Kevin McCarthy, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene, all of this has just really been bothering me. And I was lying in bed last night feeling like, why are we bothering doing all this work? What the fuck? Smuggler was right. The parable of the tribes, the aggressive tribes gonna dominate here. And I thought, I wonder if Jeff has anything hopeful. <laughs> I was wondering the same thing. <clears throat> so, you know, I'm going to do my best to bring some integral sanity to this moment because it's, you know, human life is crazy. It's always been crazy. Look at history as crazy. In some ways, we're less crazy. Many ways, we're less crazy now than ever. Uh, and integral helps us see that, you know, this upward evolution of consciousness and culture towards goodness, truth, and beauty, opposite, off, often by means of their opposites. That's, uh, you know, our God is a gnarly God, as I often say. But one of the things that is true, and I think it's really one of the great achievements of humanity, that we can take into account in this time, and that is that we don't have to be obsessed by our enemies. We don't have to be obsessed by the news. You know, this Marjorie Taylor Greene, and, you know, and here she is, you know, the, the, right on schedule. And I, too, am having this reaction against her. And I, I had heard jokes about her being the QAnon congresswoman from Georgia. So, you know, I knew she was crazy with the Jewish lasers starting the fires in California and, and all of it, all of the crazy stuff from QAnon. And then I saw a video of her following one of the surviving teenagers from the Parkland school shooting and shouting at him about it being a false flag and her Second Amendment's rights. And then I hate her, you know, that's just so low, that behavior. And then I see her video where she does this thing about taking America back and the patriots and the guns and they're stealing our country and, you know, essentially inciting the occupation of the Capitol, which she did. And I fear her, you know, so we're right back into this obsession. So this Trump show, you know, this obsessing about a crazy person that we hate and fear. So one of the things that Integral helps us see is that, again, we don't have to go there. We don't have to be obsessed with the news of the, of the, with the fight itself, if we want to. You know, we have in modernity, the rule of laws, not men, our systems of sharing power, different groups. We send our representatives to fight in the arena in Washington, and we can get on with our lives. And this was not an option. It's certainly not an option in the tribal world, which where life is 
usually there's exceptions, but usually organized around warfare, tribal warfare. And, uh, you know, the, the rule is my tribe either beats your tribe or gets beaten by your tribe. And I often think about that here living in Boulder. We have these beautiful flat iron mountains just to the west of us, Rocky Mountains here. And just as a visualization, just wonder what it would be like to not know if the enemy is up over the ridge or if they're looking at us or if they're planning a nighttime raid. And politics was in that way, was an obsession for most of human history. Certainly through the warrior stage, the red stage development, where you have to pay exquisite attention to what the warlord requires from you or when his men are gonna come for your son or daughter. And it's not true in the next stage, traditionalism, when traditionalism was um, uh, bestrode the world and we didn't have modernity to civilize it, then you lived under the rule of the monarch or the theocrat or you know, the autocrat of some sort, many people still do, who determine how you live your life. Uh, and if you play by the rules of the autocrat, he or she, in some cases, will provide for you. That's the promise. And for sure, if you don't, you'll pay the price. And as I sometimes have pointed out, the great archetype for the autocrat is particularly in terms of this traditional formulation of the autocrat is God, you know, God himself, almighty God, who says, love me and I'll save you. Or if you don't love me and worship me and make me the center of everything, you'll be sorry. And the intelligent choice and the, the sort of natural choice when your heart is at that center of gravity yourself is that you love him and you work for him and, and organize yourself around whatever the warlord is saying or the autocrat is saying or what God is saying uh, as good. And that's sort of the nature of this stage that we see the world as a colossal battle between good and evil. And that's how traditional people see the world, traditional people who, whose hearts in traditional, they may be a functional in the modern world, but their hearts in this pre-modern world. And their life is about fighting the enemy. And God doesn't compromise with the enemy, with the devil. God triumphs over the devil, except here in our fallen world where the devil triumphs over us and so if we're not careful and vigilant, then, then we're not doing our jobs, we're not being responsible, and we need to go into battle every day. And that is that, um, that's the Marjorie Taylor Greene mentality. And we see it with that whole patriot movement about real America and the enemies of real America and how the Americans in 1776 took up their weapons and fought the British and we have to protect our country against the people who are stealing and defiling it and we have to follow our great leader Donald Trump. Eish. So anyway, that's, um, you know, to me in a way that's Trump's 
greatest crime. It's not really, but it's one of them. And that is, it's, it's maybe better put as it's his great superpower is that he was able to use fear and, uh, and to draw all attention to himself. Uh, it's like the, the epigram to the book Fear that Bob Woodward wrote about Trump. The epigram is a quote from Trump where he says, real power is, I don't even want to use the word, fear. And, you know, I was watching Casey Hunt this morning on MSNBC and her show, and she's a big Washington insider. She was a congressional reporter for years. And she just talks about how the people in Congress that she knows are just are they're relieved. This was Republican, Democrat, all sides, that there's not a tweet bomb that's going to explode over their head at any given time. And, uh, I, you know, I think we feel that way, too. So modernity does come along with this idea that it's laws, not men. That's a big, amazing achievement. And it's this great civilizing force. And as modernity becomes ascendant in a culture, which it has in what we would call the developed world, then a blanket of pacification is imposed on the culture at large. So that even pre-modern people who would in a way like to be violent, they would be violent in another circumstance, but they're limited to being, you know, violent in, on Reddit and Twitter. Uh, and, and, but sometimes it leaks out, you know, into real violence. And that's the bright line, you know, is when, when are we actually dealing with antisocial behavior like we did with Trump? after the election. I mean, I, I think it's hard for people to wrap their head around what he did, you know, with this relentless barrage of fantasy about a stolen election and calling people to arms in Washington, which then uh, attacked the Capitol. And, you know, I hate to use the worst sort of talking points of the left and the media, but it was an assault on our democracy. I mean, it's just hard to um, envision it as something else. And, uh, and that's, that, that's that bright line. And that's why, you know, I'm all for whatever book they could throw at that man at this point is good with me. I, I, there was a point where I just wanted him to go away and losing an election and being rejected in that way, the sort of modern way would be punishment enough for whatever he did wrong. And there was some things he did right, and I get it, and I'm not, you know, we, we, I've spent a lot of time disassociating Trump from Trumpism and a lot of his own policies. But Trump himself is an antisocial being. And, you know, violence is, of course, the bright line, and he crossed it, or inciting violence, which he crossed, and so did Marjorie Taylor Greene. She's in that same category. And I think she, too, should be marginalized. I know today is the day that they are going to vote, I guess, in the House or maybe tomorrow about her being stripped from any of her uh, uh, committee assignments. And I think if, whatever they can do along those lines, they should do, because this really isn't hard. <laughs> you know, When you have this kind of a breakdown in society that we did on January 6th, you know, it's, there's an inflection point there. 
And, um, you know, it, it, it shouldn't be hard and it isn't hard, I don't think. Well, maybe it is. But I, I think the spell is being broken on the right around Trump. I see today that there was a survey saying that Trump's support is down 20% among Republicans. And this, this is the important thing because Republicans approved of him to 89% uh, after the sacking of the Capitol. And now that's down 20%. That's not saying much, but it's a big trend actually. And it just goes to show that, you know, one of the upsides of pre-modern worldview is that it's enchanted. There's a good way in which the world needs to be re-enchanted uh, in, at integral. And we've talked about that, and I may even talk about that a bit in a minute. But the the the, the good side about the spells and the magical thinking that can happen in pre-modern worldviews is that the spell can be broken easily enough. And when it is, it it's gone. The, you know, it goes into nothing. And so we have Trump down 20%. I, I did note also that the number one, after Trump, Trump's still the number one um, uh, candidate for the Republicans in 2024. I think that will continue to change. But number two is Pence, and number three is Don Jr. <laughs> and um, so, you know, you could see that the, the, the spirit of the Trump administration is lingering, but dissipating. And um, again, at this point, deplatform him, impeach him, prevent him from running again. Uh, I'm, I'm shocked to see that 57% of the American public thinks he ought to be prevented from running again, essentially, however it happens. That's a lot. You know, getting 57% uh, of people to agree on anything, especially something as extreme as that, is, I think, pretty impressive. So... You know, I do think that there will be an updraft of you know, truth uh, among Republicans, not all of them, not the ones who remain pre-modern and committed to this magical, mythical world, but a lot of them, certainly the ones who have a foot in modernity. People in the integral world talk a lot about systems theory, and that's you know, very appropriate because one of the things that we see in teal particularly, or yellow, or entry-level integral, the first stage after postmodernism, is the systems of systems that interlock and run the world in our interiors, in our exteriors, in the collective, within our own individual psyches, and how these systems work. What is not seen at first stage integral is that these systems are alive, actually. And that they're, and, and when a system breaks down, it's subject to being aerated or, you know, catch the updraft of the living eros, you know, the aspect of, that's built into evolution that is pushing uh, the systems to goodness, truth, and beauty. Again, often as a result of an experience with their opposites. And we see that in our personal lives too, that 
if we look back on the biggest growth areas of our lives, it's often when we had to face some unpleasant truth or we had some fantasy be uh, punctured and exploded. Uh, or, you know, we got a bad diagnosis or a divorce or whatever it might be. You would never in a million years choose it, but you could look back at your life and see the fruit of it. And that's, I think, uh, what systems theorists often miss. If you don't see the aliveness and the updraft of the systems themselves, then all you're left with is entropy, which is why it drives me crazy with these people. They're in the integral world. And, you know, their systems theories always lead to some version of collapse and social conflict. And um, they see everything as evidence of that. And, and I might do a podcast on that at some point, but I just wanted to point that out here now. So I want to say a couple things about this pre-modern stage is that it doesn't just capture... I think in the United States, probably 25% of the population really just, they want to live in that world. But it's a strata in everybody. You know, that red warrior strata. Yes, it's it, it, in, the, in traditional strata. They're civilized by modernity and they're sensitized by post-modernity, but they're still there. And it's a good thing they're there because, you know, particularly red, it's energetic and sexy and active and ruthless in a good way. And traditionalism tells heroic stories of the ancestors and places us in a reality that is bigger than this world. It gives meaning to our lives. And on the downside, it's angry and condemning and violent and polarized and paranoid. And, you know, we can see all of that in ourselves. And part of the integral project is teasing apart what's good about all of these previous stages and, and re-inhabiting them, reintegrating them into this new juicier future. Um, and, you know, <clears throat> ditching what's wrong about them. And basically what's wrong about them or bad about them or mean about them is their insistence that they're the only worldview. That's really it. Uh, if you got rid of that and just said, hey, we, we want to join the party and what do you got? And here's what we got. Then that's when you're starting to talk integral. All right, but let's look at the people who like QAnon for just a second. And I, I got a question here from... Charlie and Kathy, and they wrote me, I wonder if QAnon is a topic that you would consider in the near future. There are many, many articles on the group that it has become a real cult. Lots of lies and conspiracies that change every day. How come so many people get involved and taken over by these lives? What is it providing for them? What is the integral approach? Is there a level that it appeals to? What is the best way to talk to a QAnon participant? Looking forward to your response. Yeah, so, you know, the main thing is, and I think I just made the case for it, is to just uh, get comfortable with the fact that QAnon gets to be here. Again, it's one of the great achievements of modernity that you're allowed to think whatever you want. And, and, and believe me, 
if you expand beyond QAnon, they're not the only people who believe crazy shit. You know, we have the truthers, the people who thought that George Bush brought down the trade towers. We have Scott Adams. He's one of the big Trump supporters on uh, uh, Twitter. Uh, he's the guy who draws Dilbert, the cartoon. And he just thinks the election was stolen. And we have people in the integral world who believe in chemtrails and crop circles and aliens. And, you know, I don't disbelieve. There's a lot of it. I certainly don't disbelieve. I, I could remember when I was in the master's uh, divinity program, MDiv program at Naropa, studying Vajrayana Buddhism. And, you know, Vajrayana is just full of deities and demons and these hell realms and God realms. And, you know, it's just the most florid uh, cosmology imaginable. And, you know, so I would be talking to my classmates and they were uh, often generally deeper, at least I was the, the ones who were the deeper Vajrayana practitioners and had been for years, some of them even, you know, growing out of the indi indigenous American Buddhist uh, a world here in Boulder. Uh, I, you know, I talked to them and say, well, you know, of course, Vajrayana is talking about aspects of our own mind. And, and so we're, when we talk about these deities, we're really talking about aspects of ourselves and we're working with our own unseen material and unwanted material and wild material. And they were like, well, yeah, not really. <laughs> I mean, we might be doing that, but what's also true is that these demons in hell realms exist in an ontological way. They're actually there whether you believe them or not, and they're not just a function of your own mind. And I'd be like, what? And they're, um, you know, reasonable people. They're, you know, my classmates. They're Americans. They're postmodern as they could possibly be. And this is something that is real for them. And I actually, you know, I went from sort of like feeling outside of that, scoffing at that, to at one point thinking, well, I don't know. You know, it's like Ken Wilber talks about how whatever dark matter is, 95% of the universe, we, is, we know it's there, but we don't know what it is. And as, as Ken often jokes, he says, there be dragons, you know, it's that those old maps where when they finally stopped being able to map out what was beyond the ocean, they'd have Tharby dragons. There's dragons there. And um, I don't know. I hope not. But at any rate, you know, we, we, there's people in the integral world who are all into aliens. I interviewed Sean S. Bjorn Harkins about it. Uh, and, and, you know, there's they have an idea that they're interdimensional beings and they're in this gray area between ontologically real and projections. And I don't quite get it all, but I don't rule it out like I used to. I do rule out, however, Hillary Clinton drinking the blood of children. That, that I would rule out. Um, but, um, you know, I have to say that at least QAnon, they, they may be in an alternative universe 
and it, 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 there might be something that's even true in the sense of they feel the oppression of the global multicultural world that they're not interested in or ready for. And so they're having an honest, if you will, reaction to that. And of course, they're doing it in the way that creates enemies and paranoia and so forth. But I will say they're allergic to the right things, cannibalism, slavery, and pedophilia. <laughs> and that is, these are things that were rampant in earlier stages of development, cannibalism in uh, tribal. Uh, and then it's funny, you know, you get into red and it's repressed cannibalism except maybe in sort of secret societies in ways where they want to conjure back up that purple magic thing. Uh, but there's just a natural reaction against it. Slavery, in traditional, replete in traditional society. Modernity comes along, it's marginalized. Uh, also, pedophilia, very much uh, part of life uh, until really modernity. Um, so often hidden, but um, rampant. So anyway, that's uh, one of the ways I think about QAnon is they get to be here like the rest of the nuts. And as long as they stay this side of violent or and, and antisocial, uh, and sometimes it's not just violence. I saw that pharmacist in Michigan who ruined 50 vials, like many hundreds of doses of the Moderna vaccine, because he thought that it was enslaving people. And uh, what did he say here? He's a flat earther. <laughs> and he thinks that the sky is a shield put up by the government to prevent individuals from seeing God. So he thought he was doing a good thing. So we can't have that. We can't have Marley Ta Marjorie Taylor Greene inciting violence, uh, even obliquely, and like Trump did, not so obliquely. Uh, and modernity gets to condemn that and to marginalize that. So there you go. Um, what else did I want to say? Oh, oh, I know. There, there was. I, I thought there was a good article in the New York Times, uh, February first. So just a couple of days ago. On the op-ed page, it's written by Adam Grant, who is a psychologist from the Wharton School, business school. The title of it is How to Deal with Unreasonable People. And it's talking about people who are, you know, into these various conspiracy theories. And he talks about his experience with a friend of his who is an anti-vaxxer. And he says uh, he's done quite a bit of research on how to talk to people like this and work with them in a way that's positive and gets them to see truths that they're, you know, magically excluding. The first point he makes is that you just can't go up against them. And as he puts it, he says, when we try to change a person's mind, our first impulse is to preach about why we're right and prosecute them for being wrong. Yet experiments show that preaching and prosecuting typically backfires. And what doesn't sway people may actually strengthen their beliefs. Much as a vaccine inoculates the physical immune system against a virus, the act of resistance fortifies the psychological immune system. 
Refuting a point of view produces antibodies against future attempts at influence. That's pretty cool. Refuting a point of view produces antibodies against future attempts at influence, making people more certain of their own opinions and more ready to rebut, rebut alternatives. And then he talks about his experience with his friend and how that's what happened with him. And then he goes on to talk about a new way that psychologists are finding that is more productive. And I think it's right on. He says, several decades ago, when treating substance abuse problems, psychologists developed a technique called motivational interviewing. The central premise, instead of trying to force other people to change, you're better off helping them find their own intrinsic motivations to change. You do that by interviewing them, asking open-ended questions and listening carefully, and holding up a mirror so they can see their own thoughts more clearly. If they express a desire to change, you guide them through that a plan. And I think that is so right on and very much in the integral um, uh, lane of dealing with people where we're always trying to replace our criticism with curiosity so that we can see instead of how could you think that to how could you think that and to actually be curious about that and to respect their what they're trying to tell us and to see the truth in it and uh, to trust Eros to try I loved what he said here that um, they want to, the goal is to get them to see themselves more clearly and that there's a natural uh, eros that, you know, they're subject to too. And so uh, let's see, there's this third point that he makes here. He says, psychologists find when we listen carefully and call attention to the nuances in people's own thinking, they become less extreme and more open in their views. I wondered how my friend's ambivalence applied to COVID, and I knew the kind of questions I asked would matter. So he's going back to his questions here, to his friend, his anti-vax friend. He says, social scientists have found that asking people how they, how, social scientists have found that asking people how their preferred political policies might work in practice rather than asking why they favor those approaches, was more effective in opening their minds. As people struggled to explain their ideal tax legislation or healthcare plan, they grasped the complexity of the problem and recognized gaps in their knowledge. And so he goes on to talk about his friend. He says, so far, for my second attempt, instead of asking R, his friend, why he was opposed to COVID vaccines, I asked him how he would stop the pandemic. He said we couldn't put our eggs in one basket. We needed a stronger focus on prevention and treatment. When I asked whether vaccines would be part of that strategy, he said yes, for some people. So, you know, some movement there. And uh, I find that's really true to the degree that I can just be curious instead of critical and going up against people, then, you know, they're, 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 I trust their uh, eros will um, carry them forward. They're on their karmic path. I always try to remember 
the line from the Buddha who says, you cannot save another person, nor may you. So our job here isn't to save other people, but we can sure be curious about them. Here's a quick question here. Are conspiracy theories such as the whole QAnon thing a shadow or remnant from pre-traditional Red Warrior stage? The other being my potential enemy and all the ways that it is plotting to get me. Is it a projection driven by fear of having to include new realities into one belief system and hence it protects the belief system from being cracked open? Yep, absolutely, right on. And again, that red strata, that red warrior stage is in all of us, but to the degree that we have a modern layer and or, you know, even a traditional layer, which at least gets us to sit down and shut up. <laughs> You know, and to uh, follow the leader and be able to organize in larger groups. But when you get to modernity, where everybody gets to have their own opinion, and a lot of, well, really, basically, this is the downside of modernity. Modernity disenchants the world entirely by reducing it to material. Um, and, you know, we want to re-enchant the world, but we want to do it in a way that is beyond these superstitions and these us, them, you know, good, bad, my enemy must be stopped, must be exterminated kind of thinking, which is just natural at that red strata. And, you know, sometimes I feel it too. By the way, I wanted to point out a, I thought a really great episode by Corey DeVos and Ryan Olke on Integral Life on inhabiting the theater of your mind, which is a episode they did on using movies to chart the stages of development. And there's, it's a very, very powerful way to do that. Let me make sure I got that correct. Um, inhabit your inner theater is what it's called. And check it out on Integral Life. And if you're not a member of Integral Life, it's worth it. It's good to do. All right. Well, thank you so much, everybody, for tuning in and listening to another episode of The Daily Evolver. Again, you can find all my stuff at dailyevolver.com. Like me on Facebook, follow me on Twitter, uh, subscribe to YouTube. All right. Awesome to you, too. Best wishes for Boulder. And we'll talk to you next time.